Today, I want to take us back to the Gospel of Luke. And uh, as uh, I mentioned last week, we've got these weeks leading up to Christmas, which uh, are known in the Catholic calendar as Advent. And, uh, and here, uh, although we're, we're a very non-traditional church, uh, it is very, uh, I think, advantageous for us to take advantage, of, to, to, to take the, the Christian calendar and use it uh, to, to, to emphasize certain, certain things. And so I'm very grateful uh, that we get uh, quite a few stories here that I can sink my teeth into in Luke chapters 1 and 2. And, uh, and we can talk about that all the way up to Christmas time. And so today is week 2 of Advent, and I want to continue talking about this song. Uh, well, chapter 1, last week we, we kind of talked about Mary and, and uh, Elizabeth and Zechariah. And we're still there in chapter 1 with Zechariah's prophecy, which is known as, as the... Um, oh gosh, what's this known as? Um, well, anyway... Uh, what's that? June twenty fourth. Yeah, no, that uh, yeah, that also. But uh, there's a special name for this uh, for the song of his, but uh, some Latin name, the Benedictus, I think it's called. Yeah. Anyway, um, Zachariah's prophecy when his mouth is finally opened after he decides to obey the Lord, and I'm going to read this song for you. It's a beautiful song of praise, the end of Luke chapter one. And you can read with me in verses 67 through 79. His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Uh, just quick little commentary along the way there uh, for... Uh, for for certain beasts of the field, the horn is the is the the point of strength, and uh, and so uh, f- sort of as a metaphor, uh, this idea the horn of our salvation appears numerous times in the Book of Psalms and in, and in songs of praise, and it basically means it means the strength. It's the it's the focal point of the strength of of the creature, and so the horn of salvation um, uh, is this idea that there is a power point that God has raised up, that will become uh, that which can gore the enemy. Now, it's a bit of a gory picture indeed, but uh, anyway, just wanted you to know what that is. Raised up for us a horn of salvation in the house of his servant David. Um, That is a reference to ancient prophecy, that God would raise up Messiah through the house of King David. That's a thousand years prior to this particular statement. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Uh, Zechariah, as he breathes this word of prophecy, as it were, speaks out the song of praise, is probably um, he's probably got some political, a uh, little hint of political expectation here, uh, most likely, because I think there was a common uh, a common thread amongst uh, the people of Israel looking for Messiah to release them from the dominion and the power of foreign nations that had taken control. Under King David, of course, there was no nation outside of Israel that had power over them. They were free. And the idea that God would raise up a horn of salvation from the household of David would be that he would restore them again to a place of freedom and liberty with a kingdom with only one king, and that king would be one of their own. Someone who loved them and cared for them and was not lording it over them, but was a benevolent uh, king, someone who, uh, who looked out for the, the good of his people, who would be the proverbial shepherd of the people. So this is a political expectation by all means, but of course we know after the fact, that Christ comes not as a political hero, not as a political deliverer, but he comes to save us not from the enemy without, but from the enemy within. 
which is a much greater enemy. Anyway, we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. Uh, just another brief commentary here, and that is that the expectation was not just freedom politically, but the expectation was that political freedom would lead to freedom of worship. And so uh, Zechariah breathes out what has been, I think, probably, uh, certainly here in America, a long-standing expectation of American Christians that we should have government that allows us freedom from tyranny, but also, more importantly, the freedom to worship God without fear. And, uh, and that is something that we, are, we celebrate as a nation. And we, we celebrate these freedoms here. And I thank God for this nation in which I get to stand in a pulpit and preach every Sunday with absolutely no fear whatsoever from the government around me. I can say whatever I want here in this place and, and, and glorify God. Uh, and, and I'm not going to be taken out and dragged through the streets and burned at the stake. Um, uh, it's, it's really a profound freedom, and you guys get to do the same. You can have Bible studies. You can, you can look at resources. You can buy things. You can have all kinds of Christian paraphernalia if you want. You can have stuff that glorifies God, and you can have junk that fills up your house. It's got you know, little crosses all over it that doesn't mean anything to anybody but you. And, uh, and it's okay. Nobody's going to come search your house and drag all that stuff out and burn it in front of you and then put you in jail for it. Thank God. It is a wonderful freedom. And it is a freedom I think all of us would cherish even more if it was gone. You know, isn't that what they say? You don't know what you got until it's gone. Uh, praise God that we still have it, and we pray that God will allow us this privilege that we may continue in this way, and we will certainly stand uh, and uh, and and be uh, vigilant and diligent uh, to pray and to act as such in a way that that protects these freedoms in as much as we can as much as is within our legal uh, rights to do so. But, uh, but there's more, because that political freedom is not actually the, it's not the, it's not the, the, the end goal of the gospel. The gospel is not political freedom. The gospel is freedom from the tyranny of sin and self. And uh, salvation is, in fact, salvation not even from sin itself, but salvation is salvation from God. I read a comment earlier this week. It said, what did Jesus come to save us from? He came to save us from God. <laughs> you didn't think about that, did you? The wrath of God is terribly fearsome. And we needed to be saved from God. What a paradox then that we are saved from God, by God, for God. Wow. Wow. Take some time to think about that. <laughs> but we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. The fear that we would experience in serving him is not necessarily the fear of a government or a national power or some kind of uh, some religious uh, group that's anti-Christian or whatever it might be. That's not the fear that we need to be delivered from. 
although those are certainly fears that we yearn for our beloved brothers and sisters all around the world to be freed from, and we remember them today. We remember Christians in nations where it is illegal to, uh, to do this, what we're doing today. We remember them and pray for their freedom, but ultimately they're praying for us, for freedom from the tyranny within, from the fear that comes because we know that we are absolutely abhorrent to God. And it's into that darkness that Christ has come with his light. Christ has come to redeem us from that, from the reality that nothing we could ever do could be good enough to make us desirable to God. Make us even have a, be a blip on his radar, in his goodness radar. Oh, he's got his sights set on us for his wrath. Until this day, Christ comes. And so Zechariah prophesies, and his prophecy is 100% accurate. His expectation and his understanding of his own prophecy, probably somewhat clouded by his nationalistic uh, desires. Nothing wrong with that. It's all he grew up with. But Christ came to do so much more. And you, child... Now he goes to prophesy to John himself. You, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, and you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. I like the King James Version, whereby the day spring shall visit us from on high. All week long I had this verse stuck in my head. The day spring from on high. So funny, we went to uh, Jason's house for Bible study on Friday night and, and the light was bursting forth into the darkness because Jason was le leading us in John chapter 1. Also, you know, a, um, John's version of the, uh, of the incarnation. Uh, not told in the same story that Luke tells, but the same, the same emphasis, the light breaks forth into the darkness. And so the light was breaking at Jason's house on Friday night. It was awesome. But... Um, but I've had this stuck in my, in my head all week long, whereby the day spring shall visit us from on high. And I got thinking about that, and I'm going to share some of that with you today. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Somebody said that when the day dawns, the way becomes clear. And so all of your stumbling through the darkness is now over. Uh, the reason why we don't move a whole lot in the darkness is because we can't see. And so we become paralyzed in the darkness. We, we're afraid of tripping and falling and falling into, into a chasm or, 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 or breaking our bones over, over stumbling stones. But when the light begins to dawn and, and, and our eyesight is restored, we're able to pick out the way and we can see the way. But... My friends, there still remains the responsibility on part of the, of the seer to get up and to walk in the way that is now clear. And so the salvation that God offers is not just the breaking forth of the light in the darkness, but because of that, the invitation to walk, therefore, in the light as children of the light. And that's where our efforts match God's inestimable grace he shone the light in the darkness, and only God can shine the light in the darkness. But you must stand up 
and walk. Take up your bed and walk. And this is the beauty, uh, the, the synergy of our hearts with God. He empowers us through his light and he gives us grace and hope. And he will keep our feet from stumbling. But this day spring from on high, I got thinking about it, and I thought about the, the words of a song we were singing this morning, the fount, come thou fount of every blessing. Last week we sang about God being the fountain of our, uh, the source of, of, of all of our creativity, of all of our, our energy and our, and our life, the very life force within us that gives us the energy to get up every morning. This is, this is God. We look to Him for that. And I got to thinking about how uh, that can be actually quite um, confusing. Uh, in our lives, because as as human beings, we're we're looking for, uh, well, I don't know about you, but I'm definitely looking for that momentum. I'm looking for that mojo. I'm looking for a reason to get up in the morning, and um, and there are of course many many things that can temporarily motivate us. Uh, when I know something's arriving in the mail, I can be pretty excited to get up and go check the mailbox. And, uh, and if it's not there, I'll check it again later. <laughs> and if it's not there, I'll go tomorrow morning, I'll check it again. And you might find me driving back and forth to the post office to check my mailbox to see if, I, if there's something coming and I don't have it yet. I'm motivated. But it's a temporary motivation. When that thing arrives, then I need another motivation. What is there that we can have that motivates us fully, all together, every day? That can motivate us even when we're sick or feeling tired or miserable? <clears throat> what kind of motivation is there that can get us this kind of day spring? And um, and so I've been thinking about uh, I've been thinking about it. I've been thinking about the about the way in which our uh, our motivation is is often um, uh, because it's so multifaceted. It's it's hard to keep track of. There are there are many things that draw my attention away, and. Um, Sometimes I find myself pretty motivated. I, I catch a vision for a brief, brief moment of something that could be, and then I start working on it, and then all of a sudden something distracts me over here, and I go over and I start working on this, and then I've forgotten that. By the next you know, five minutes, there's something else over here gets me going, or I'm researching that, and then an idea pops up. Oh, wait, over here. And next thing I know, I've got 10 or 12 things going, and none of them get finished. None of them get worked on. And do you guys ever suffer like that as well? Squirrel, Squirrel yes, indeed. Happens when I'm preaching a lot. <laughs> um, distractions happen frequently, too frequently. I'd like to somehow curb those distractions. I'd like to get some mastery over those distractions and focus on those things that are truly valuable, that truly bring the glory of the Lord. And um, again, just an illustration just to help you identify in case you haven't identified yet, and then I'll move on. Um, from time to time in my world, I have a little bit of extra money to, to buy a toy. And uh, my toys are not big. They're not big toys. Some of my friends have, have lots of money and can buy big toys. Uh, but, but my toys are, are small. So... Smallish, I mean, maybe they're bigger than yours, but but they, I don't know. I have I have a kayak out behind my 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 shed, and it, it hangs on a little hook on the wall, and underneath it is another one. Tammy's kayak. Anybody else have a kayak? Oh, there's a couple of you. Okay, we, we can identify. Um, I bought that kayak probably 15 years ago, and I was so excited about that kayak, and um, I bought mine first. Then I bought one for Tammy. 
because it didn't make any sense for me to have a kayak and her not have one. I'd never actually go out on the thing. So um, got to convince her that that's a really good idea. So, uh, of course, there's limited time because it's, it's, it's quite cold most of the year up here in the Northeast. So kayaking is, you know, it's either too hot or it's too cold. So there's like a very limited window when kayaking is great. And then, of course, here this, it's tidal. So had a couple of occasions where I took the kayak out and got stuck in a low tide and... Uh, you know, I had to try and come home trudging through mud, river mud that was, you know, waist deep. And um, so it's a limited, a limited time thing. But when I bought the kayaks, I realized that there were a lot of things that go with kayaks to make kayaking more fun. Like a super lightweight paddle, you know, the heavy paddles, you'll kayak for 20 minutes and you'll be done. But with a graphite paddle, a paddle carbon graphite paddle. So I saved up my money and I bought that. And then I realized... Kayaking is fun, but getting the kayak to the place where you're going to kayak, that's, that's a bit of a chore, isn't it? So you needed to have really good racks. So at first I bought the cheap racks, and then I realized that was lame. That takes many, many more hours to load those things up than I wanted to. So how about I get a kayak rack that I can load the kayaks in five minutes flat? But then you realize when you put the racks on the car that you can't go through the car wash. <laughs> so you've got to take the racks off and put the racks back on again. It's slowly but surely... The add-ons and then the takeoffs <laughs> have resulted that in 2022, I did not use my kayaks once. Not one time. What a shame. Isn't that a shame? I should go kayaking this afternoon just to make it. <laughs> I was so distracted by those kayaks when I bought them. It was all I could think about. It's so short-lived. I'm glad I have them. Some of my friends have enjoyed using them. But it is, it's, it's a short-lived thing, isn't it? I want to do things that have a longer shelf life. I want to be involved in things that have a, a much longer shelf life. Because I feel that uh, in the, just the ebb and flow of life, and the, you know, if all my life is just you know, living for the next toy, so I can use it and get bored with it, and then work and slave away so I can buy another toy and be happy again for that moment, I just feel like it's a never-ending cycle of disappointment. But there is a pursuit that never ends in disappointment. There's a pursuit of Christ which is like a day spring that breaks forth in your heart that is so fresh and so new. It's the mercies of the Lord every morning. How do we get there? How do we get to that place? Well, as you know, I've been teaching you uh, for quite some time about, uh, about this ancient way, right? About re returning to the ancient way and... and, and it's all because we went, we went for a long walk this summer and uh, 525 miles in Spain, and it was amazing. Uh, and when we came back from that walk, I was astonished at how important it seems that we should be on pilgrimage uh, in our Christian lives. And there is, a, there is a beautiful reward in the pilgrimage that is fresh and new every day that's not the same as the sort of short-lived excitement and then disappointments of, of, of living for the, the next rush, the next toy. And, um, and I, I believe that uh, I can tie this, all, this idea all together for you today with this, a concept that is really, uh, it shows up throughout the Old Testament and, and it's in the New Testament too. It's the idea of a tent, a tent. And um, I have a few tents uh, I have a, a hammock tent, and I have a, a ground tent, and I have a big tent, and I have little pup tents. I have lots of tents at home. We don't use them either. <laughs> um, 
Just they, they were, yeah, they, we, we store them in the kayak. Uh, anyway. Um, Touche. But uh, this idea of a tent uh, is actually a profound idea. Um, it shows up in the, um, obviously, the nomadic pilgrimage kind of lifestyle of the early, the early books of, of the Bible. So Genesis is full of, of you know, Abraham's nomadic journey through the Promised Land, and he lived in tents, didn't he? Uh, he didn't build himself a house. Uh, he lived in a tent looking for the city whose builder and maker is God. Hebrews tells us, you know, the, in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews tells us about, about uh, all the ancients of faith who, who had their eyes fixed on, on a city that was elsewhere. And... Um, and this idea of a tent is so important that it gets celebrated later. Uh, not only did Abraham live in tents, Isaac and Jacob and so forth, but then when the children of Israel went out of Egypt after 400 years of being essentially um, the slave class in Egypt, they were delivered by God through the Red Sea. You remember the Moses story and, and into the wilderness. And for 40 years, they lived in tents. And in their in their living, they become they became accustomed to... I would imagine not. They became used to not being accustomed to a place, not becoming like so familiar with the place. This is where I'm going to live forever. I'm going to dig roots here. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, going to put down foundations and build a big house here. Everywhere they went in the wilderness, they were at the mercy of the Lord, who was also at the time living in a tent. It's one of the profound mysteries of of God, that uh, God who is not contained in the universe would actually allow himself to come and be contained in a tent, as it were. Uh, he, he gave specific instruction to Moses uh, on how to build that tent, the tent of meeting, the tabernacle of God. And uh, there were a couple of people that were set apart to build it, Bezalel and Aholiab. Remember those guys? And uh, if you've read through the Old Testament, their names pop up. Uh, they were skilled artisans. They, they worked uh, in, in colors and cloth and gold and silver and, and woodwork and stuff, so forth. And they built the tabernacle of God. God lived in a tent while his people lived in, in tents. And the, and the introduction to relationship with God as a nation was in the context of nomadic lifestyle, of, of pilgrimage. And so the very first, before they actually go into their own promised land and receive cities and vineyards and fields that they can plow and plant they are taught the principles of nationhood in pilgrimage and so i think this is super important for us as we fashion and frame our own christian expectation of what it means to live in community uh, both in in christian community and in our secular community around us i think it's very important that we return to this, the same sort of process i think that i think that the learning process is is very much the same because in the New Testament, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is, of course, birthed at Pentecost, isn't it? And after Pentecost, not long after Pentecost, comes a great persecution of the church, at which time they are scattered uh, in, in all the world and they go forth essentially in pilgrimage. And, and the instruction that's given to them in all these places is, guys, don't set down roots in, on the earth because Jesus is coming. There's an expectation of the return of the Lord. And they go forth into the world into this exile, as it were. But it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a predestined exile. It's God who knew that they were going to be exiled and he pre-planned that they should be exiled. So not a punishment, an exile in punishment, but they're exiled, as it were, from their, from their earth-bound life into this beautiful pilgrimage where they expect 
the kingdom of God that is come, but they go forth bringing light and life to everyone, to everyone, teaching them the principles of pilgrimage. So before we can fashion an idea of what a nation looks like, or on a much smaller you know, thing, the microcosm of the nation, the church right here, before we can really decide what that should look like, we need to understand the, the principles of pilgrimage and living in a tent. Living in a tent. And um, interesting, Bezalel and Aholiab, the, the ones who, who built those things, they were holy, sanctified, set apart. They weren't priests, but they were... They, I think in a, in a way, they're, they're, they're kind of like a precursor of the Holy Spirit. They're well-skilled and well-trained to take the natural the, 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 the materials and fashion them into something beautiful. In the same way, the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and fashions us into a beautiful temple for the Lord, a beautiful tabernacle for the Lord. I'm getting ahead of myself. Aholiab's name, uh, the first part of Ahol, or, or, or Ahal, is actually a Hebrew word which means tent. Interesting. So, but back to this idea. God has them living in tents, and He Himself lives in a tent with them, and He meets with them in the tent. It's known as the tent of meeting. Now, remember when Abraham had his tent established, and, and you know, and God came and met with him there, and Abraham was like, "Oh, visitors, huh? Sarah, you know, send someone, slaughter a, a calf or a, or, or a." a a goat or something and make some food please guys would you come sit enjoy talk with us and this is how abraham interacted with his visitors and guests and in so doing he entertained god god came and began talking to him about what he was going to do and remember the story of uh, even of sodom and gomorrah and how god was going to go and destroy sodom and gomorrah and abraham ended up bartering with god remember that story where did it happen in a tent it happened in a tent because in the ancient times, the tent represented the place where minds would meet. The tent was the place where minds would meet together. And, uh, and they would sit down in a place of temporary dwelling under the canopy. And there they would engage with one another and begin to share ideas. And those ideas would begin to work together into a single idea. Multiple ideas. Whoops. Multiple ideas becoming a single idea from which essentially creativity was born. It happened in a tent. In God's version of that tent, of course, the canopy of the sky is like his tent. So when God takes Abraham outside and says, count the stars in the sky, what is he doing? He's bringing him into his dwelling place, as it were. And saying, Abraham, let's step out of your small tent. Let's step into my big tent. And as you look up at the stars in the sky, count them. See if you can count them. And then he says, I'm going to give you children like these stars. More number than the stars. And so the canopy of the sky is God's domain, God's tent in which he lives. And it's in that place of meeting with God under the canopy that... That this creative idea is given, that this promise is given, that this covenant is given. It all happens inside of God's tent, as it were. Later, of course, the tent of God, which contains the Ark of the Covenant and God's, you know, the, the things that represent the presence of the Lord. And then, of course, the cloud of God's presence. Those move from place to place because God is not limited to one place and one time. He is in all places at all times, but God wants us to have this idea that it's not static. He's not, you don't go, for example, to church to meet God. 
because God's desire has always been that he would actually tabernacle with his people. You understand? So this tent idea then carries forward into the new covenant. The tent uh, in the Old Testament, it's the tent of meeting, which becomes then the tent at, at, you know, at Shiloh when they finally move into the Promised Land, then moves to Gibeon. And, uh, and then, of course, uh, the Ark of the Covenant is lost, and, and then it's re re restored. Eventually, David brings the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, and he makes the Tabernacle of David. Well, there's also the Tabernacle of Gibeon going on at the same time. There's a couple different tents. Now it's a little bit confused. Where do we meet with God? But God's presence is with David at the Tabernacle. And then Solomon brings the two of them back together again. And uh, so instead of having one place, they had two, and then in two, instead of two places, back to one again. It's kind of like the nation of Israel, which was God's, and then it divided into two kingdoms, and then it came back into one kingdom. It's kind of the same idea. Eventually, it's all in this, this temple that Solomon builds, which then becomes a temple, not a tent. And for a couple hundred years, basically, well, actually, really not even. Essentially, for a couple of months, Solomon's temple becomes a really active place with the presence of the Lord. But it's not long before Solomon goes awry and Solomon's kids go awry and everybody else goes awry. And eventually, the temple of God is destroyed and rebuilt. And then Jesus comes here. little interesting thought, by the way. This is just a freebie while I'm thinking about it. It's really kind of cool. You guys will enjoy this. Um, uh, did you know, of course, Mary and Joseph were poor? Did you guys know that? How do you know that they were poor? Because there was no room at the inn. She says that's actually probably a good idea. But you actually nailed it. The sacrifice that they make at the temple is actually the key point where we recognize that they're poor. Because according to the law of Moses, for the, uh, the sacrifices to be made at the time of purification... Uh, the law of Moses had a time when women who had given birth had to go through a period of separation from everybody so that they could be well and no longer uh, susceptible to diseases and so forth. And, and, uh, and once that time of, of purification had ended, they would actually offer a sacrifice for purification at the temple. So there was the dedication of a child, which would happen eight days after the child was born, but then later the purification of the mother. And so when the time of purification was, was uh, completed, the mother was to bring a lamb. They were to take a lamb that was a year old and sacrifice that lamb. But according to the law of Moses, if they couldn't afford a lamb, they could bring two turtle doves. And so Mary and Joseph brought two turtle doves. We read about it here in Luke. And uh, that is an indication that they did not have enough money. She was to raise the lamb of God that would take away the sin of the world, but she couldn't afford a lamb for her own sacrifice. Isn't that beautiful? And just in case you think that you're unworthy to carry the glory of the Lord, this is just simply not true. If you think that you are unworthy or you don't have enough skill, you don't carry the talent, you don't have the right whatever, I just want you to know, Mary didn't have enough, Joseph didn't have enough money to buy the sacrificial lamb. But God still chose them to raise the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the whole world. So, my brothers and sisters, put your confidence in God, not in the flesh. Let no one boast in the flesh. Let us boast instead in Christ and his grace. But this tent, Jesus comes and, of course, throughout this, uh, his season here with us, 30 years, we see him in the temple a few times. 
And in the temple, he has a couple of things to say. When he's 12 years old, he's debating with the leaders in the temple and the and religious leaders. But later, when he's in his 30s and he's in his ministry, he's at the temple and he's decrying certain things that are awry. He mentions the temple is a, a den of iniquity. It's supposed to be a house of prayer. But there, there are money changes t- uh, tables and, and there's, there's merchandising happening in the temple. And, and so it's lost. they've lost their vision. They've lost their, their plumb line. Then Jesus comes in to set them straight. At one point, his disciples marvel at the beauty of the temple. And Jesus says, you're marveling at this, but not one stone will be left upon another. Why? Well, because as it turns out, God wasn't looking for a place where he could be static. He wasn't looking for a temple that would become the centerpiece of religion all around the world, where people would make pilgrimage from everywhere to go to that place. No, God wasn't setting up a new pilgrimage destination on earth. He was preparing us to become the tent of the Lord. You and I are, in fact, the tent of God. At one point, Paul writes about his life, and he says he's ready to put off this tent. He's ready, ready to go and be with the Lord. You know, it's the end of his ministry, and, and certainly uh, we, we recognize that as kind of a you know, metaphor for uh, dying. Uh, and, and, uh, and this old... This old body, you know, I'll look forward to the day when I get a new one. Absolutely. Some of you are, are, are definitely looking forward to the day you get a new one. Uh, the disease will be gone. The pain will be gone. All the aches and pains or, and whatnot. And, and, uh, but, uh, but we are temporarily the dwelling place of God because God's intention has always been to be with his people, amongst his people, and not static, but movable. You know, the Bible speaks about this throne room of God. Uh, and in Ezekiel, there's a, there's, a, there's a prophetic word about the new temple of God <clears throat> from which uh, under, his, under his throne, a river flows. And that river goes out and brings healing to the nations. In the book of Revelation, we read about the same thing, the river of life that flows from under the throne of God. Well, guess what? Didn't Jesus say that when the Holy Spirit came into us, that rivers of living water would come up from inside of us and overflow? Isn't that what he said? What is the metaphor? The metaphor is we become the temple of God. The tent of God's dwelling where his throne is, temporary throne is, and from underneath his throne flows this this river. Well, if there's one place where the river flows, like a geographical location, we'd all have to go there. How would you get the whole world to that place? But Jesus had a much better idea. He said, I'll let the Holy Spirit come. The Father will send the Holy Spirit and he will become like this river of living water inside of you, overflowing. And then you will go forth and everywhere you go, the temple of God goes. The tent of the Lord goes. The throne of God goes in your life and brings life to everybody else around you. How in the world are we supposed to get your co-workers into church? You guys have been trying for years. Look at all the empty chairs that could be filled with them. They're not coming, but guess what? That doesn't stop the glory of God from going to where they are because you are the tent of God. You are the tent of God. Now, as we start to think about this and what it actually could mean, the power of it, where does the creation begin? Well, it begins in the vast expanse, right? God says, let there be, and there it is. And what does it say in Genesis? The earth was formless and void, and the Holy Spirit was hovering over the waters. The Holy Spirit was like the canopy over the waters. And out of that, the earth and the Holy Spirit mixed together, and the Holy Spirit just breathed life, and the earth sprang forth. And from the earth, 
from the from the from um, the waters come forth the land, and from the land comes forth all the green, the grass, the trees, the, the animals, and the, the birds, the fish. Everything is just swarming all over the place. And then man is made by God, fashioned, life breathed into him. This is all happening within the canopy of God, within the tent of God. All creative energy is inside of that tent of God, as it were. So what if we are the tent of the Lord and we go to that place where we meet with God in that tent and our thoughts and his thoughts begin to work together? Think about the profound nature of the creativity of God that could be taking place inside of your heart and your life. I mean, you need something that's going to get you more energized than the, the kayak? Because I'm telling you right here, there's untapped wonder in this place. Not only is it creative energy, but it's the ability to just stand in awe of all that God is because you're in his presence. The Bible tells us that in the days of the tent of Moses, Moses would go in and out and see God face to face like a man meets with his friend, but he would leave. And when he would leave, he'd have to cover his face. He's glowing so much that just, oh, you know, his light was bursting forth. He had to cover his face so that people could see him. They were blinded. But Moses would go in and out, but the Bible tells us that Joshua, Moses' assistant, would remain in the presence. In this way, Joshua sort of is a precursor of Jesus because Jesus is in the presence of the Lord. And his name is also Yeshua, Joshua, Joshua, the same name. And he is also the one who brings us into the promised land. So in a way, you know, Joshua sort of foreshadows Christ. But in the presence of the Lord is where he gains his strength. Where does he hear from the Lord who says to him, be strong, be courageous? It's there in the presence of the Lord. Do you need a word from the Lord? Well, it's time to dwell in the tents of the Lord. And where is the tent of the Lord? Well, as it turns out, it's not this building, although this is a beautiful place for us to gather together, each of us, the tent of the Lord, to come together under the canopy of God as a group. But every one of us has this invitation to meet with the Lord right here, here. This is a very vulnerable place, though. It's a bit of a fragile place because we are easily distracted and we are easily pulled away by the tents of the wicked. The psalmists say in Psalm 84, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than dwell in the tents of the wicked. What does it mean to dwell in the tent of the wicked? Well, it means to be in the place where our thoughts and the thoughts of the wicked begin to merge together. That's what it means to dwell in the tent of the wicked. It means to go in there with the intention of melding ideas with the wicked. Who are the wicked? Well, we were the wicked, weren't we? Each of us following our own way. Rebelling against God. I think the best way to destroy, to, to destroy, the best way to describe the wicked would be the disloyal, those disloyal to God, those whose loyalties have been shifted from God to themselves. Those who are loyal to themselves and loyal to those who are uh, not God. Those whose loyalty is in Christ, whose, whose loyalty is for Christ and for Christ alone, these would be the righteous. 
I think it's good for us just to try and make a differentiation in our minds between wicked and good as loyal and disloyal. The loyal ones are those who are righteous. The disloyal are those who are wicked. And I have, I have some references in Scripture I'd love to talk with you about. Don't have time because I'm down to a minute on the clock. But, but uh, there are many references in Scripture that point towards us. Throughout the Old Testament, you may have noticed that there are references to the unfaithfulness of Israel as a nation, as, as an adulterous wife, where God is the husband and Israel is the adulterous wife, right? Many scriptures that point towards that and use that metaphor to describe the disloyalty of those who meet in the tents of the wicked. Loyalty is the issue here. And so Emilio and I were having a, a chat about this before service. We were talking about what does it mean to, to actually be, to dwell in the tents of the righteous, to, be, to dwell in the tent of the Lord. Practically speaking, does this mean, am I allowed to send my kids to public school, for example? Because in public school, are they not going to be introduced to the ideas of the world? And then I want my child, who I want to grow in God, then going to this place where they're going to be influenced by worldly thinking. Now their, their minds are coming together. Is that the tent of the wicked? And yet, at the same time, we recognize that there are valuable things in, uh, in education that our kids need to learn. Let's just be honest. There, there are things about, about science and mathematics and, and, uh, and business. Uh, you know, how can you expect to be uh, great at business? And this, and this, of course, you're just a natural. But you, you go to school and you, and you, and you get an MBA uh, and you learn many things about business. You want to be an accountant, you've got to go study accounting and, uh, and, and be become an accountant. Uh, is that a godly thing or an ungodly thing? Well, this is where it could get confusing. We could start saying, well, <clears throat> for example, we are musicians. Emilio and I were talking about this because we're musicians. So a musician who wants to learn. <clears throat> I think of my friends who own music schools. And uh, what, how, what, what are you going to use to teach the students who come to learn music? You know, there are, there are certain basic ideas in music, but then most of the people who, 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 uh, who, who are inspirational with music are uh, people who... Are, not necessarily Christians, not using their gift to, to honor God. So if you're going to learn, you know, you want to learn some really great, you know, rock guitar licks, you're going to learn from Eddie Van Halen, but because he's a great guitarist, but, but now you're thinking, well, there's, there's some worldly influence there. Am I, am I mind melding with the world? Am I sitting in the tents of the wicked? Where does this end? Does it end with prohibition? Do we prohibit our kids and, and our, and our, our church from, 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 from doing that? Where do we, where do we, where do we put the parameters on this? What is the, what's the fine line? Where do we know that we've crossed over or we haven't crossed over? Is, is, does the question make sense to you? Have you struggled with this question as well? It seems really nuanced, doesn't it? We came up with a solution. And the solution is loyalty. Knowledge is neither good nor evil. But what we do with the knowledge displays our loyalty. Adam and Eve stood in front of that tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The knowledge itself was not evil. There was good, there was evil, and there was knowledge to know the difference, to be able to discern between good and evil. What was problematic was not the knowledge. What was problematic was the loyalty. God said, did God say? To whom are we loyal? 
And as you raise your children and you raise your grandchildren and you raise the community around you, as you teach in school or in music school, what loyalties are being defended? What loyalties are being promoted? That's the real issue. In your family, as you try to discern where you should lay down the law and have prohibitions and not have prohibitions, where you should have leniency or where you should allow, you know, what movies are we going to watch and what are we going to laugh at? What, what sense of humor are we going to encourage amongst us? Sarcasm, cutting, biting humor, because it's funny. Uh, are we going to enjoy that sort of thing? Or is that antichrist? Is that, is that coarse jesting? Where do, we, where do we draw the line on this stuff? Well, I think the line gets drawn very firmly at loyalty. Are we loyal to Christ? Are we loyal to ourselves? Ultimately. The day spring is visiting us from on high. And he's inviting us into his tent. Where we will mix our thoughts with his. And he will breathe life into us. There is a secret place that God has invited us into. Those who dwell in that secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shelter of Almighty. There is a favor of God that is poured out upon those who are loyal to Him. The Lord's eyes are searching to and fro across all the earth to display Himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal towards Him. God loves to meet with his people. You know that Psalm 91 verse 1 uh, that says, He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High. That word secret place, unfortunately, doesn't mean tent. Uh, it does mean shelter. Uh, it is a place of, 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 of dwelling. So in a way, it's like a tent. But actually, the word is something even more precious. It means this. It means a veil. Like a bride's veil. Behind the veil is something secret, something private, something holy, something set apart only for her bridegroom. He who dwells behind the veil of the Almighty shall abide under his protection. That's a translation, a rough translation of Psalm 91 verse 1. You and I have been invited into the secret place with God behind his veil in his royal, holy tent. Why do we seek after the tents of the wicked? Why do we run headlong into that adulterous relationship with the world? It is good to learn wisdom and knowledge. All good things come from the Father above. All good things. So medicine, science, mathematics, music, architecture, engineering of all sorts, trades, culinary arts. All these things are beautiful and they are gifts to us from the Lord. And in anything that is good there, we can glean and we can take. 
And what is not good, we should discern quickly, is not good. And if we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, he is like Bezalel and Aholiab, shaping that knowledge into a holy place for God. Taking the raw elements of that knowledge and shaping it to his glory. The question is, for whom? So hold fast, my brothers and sisters, to the promise of God. And be faithful to him. And be loyal. And let us dwell in the tents of the righteous rather than the tents of the wicked. And let us walk in the favor of our God. For the day spring from on high has sprung. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.